I just imagine doing a story time for a kid named like Gundam Johnson or something. <laughs> I want that to happen. Imagine like Ickery Dickery Bumblebee. Won't you say your name for me? Gundam Naruto. Kylo. Those are very nice names. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Do you not know that a man is not dead while his name is still spoken? Sir Terry Pratchett. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Keep It Fictional from the Port Moody Public Library. I am here with my book friends who all have wonderful, wonderful names, such as Mark and Gabriel and Corrine. And I don't know if I'm right in saying that I don't think our names ended up on the list that we have to consult for today's episode, right? Okay, yeah, I didn't think so. Because we're exceptional. That's why we have exceptional names, clearly. Anyway, what we have to do today, and I want to credit Gabriel for this idea. I guess it's a good idea, I hope, for everybody. <laughs> credit or blame, one or the other, is that what we have to do today is to find a book, read a book that is written by an author with a first name that appears as one of the top, most popular baby names for the year we were born. So, like I said, none of our names were there, but these authors' names were. And so I'd be really interested to know what everybody end up getting because I have a feeling that, I don't know, names change, trends change. So my generations and all your generations is probably going to be a little different. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Or maybe there's like these classics names that just like appears on all our lists. Who knows? But first, I want to start with our question for the day. This is a little bit more of a quiz. My question for today, and you have 30 seconds to figure this out, is that in 2021, from January 1st to December 15th, apparently there are 40,333 babies born in British Columbia. So my question for you, and hands off your Google and your phone and your computer, is what are the top 10 baby names in 2021 in British Columbia. Ready, set, go. I know it's early in the day. We all have enough coffee to do this. All right, pens down, time's up. Okay, so in British Columbia, out of the 40,000 babies, 238 of them has chosen the name Olivia, and that is the top. After that is, you can check your list, Liam, Noah, Emma, Jack, Theodore, Benjamin, Charlotte, Oliver, and Ava. I have to admit the Jack really throws me honestly not surprised at any of them because because I do baby time and what I've kind of you kind of see the different trends happening is that a lot of what I would kind of term like old-fashioned names or like 
classic names, like they're all very, very popular. So none of those surprise me except for Jack. Well, Jack, Jack is closer to the trend that I would have expected because I didn't think of maybe classic names. I was thinking about the fact that it's becoming more and more common and I think less and less cringe to name your children after characters you really care about. And there was an entire period of time where almost every video game protagonist, but also almost anything else was named Jack because it was supposed to be sort of the blank slate onto which you project because Jack is John. And so you're John Smith. And so I thought maybe this is a little subtle knot because my list included absolutely none of those names, but did include Naruto and Ray because I was banking on the concept that someone was like, hey, did you, you put Ray down? Well, I put Ray in like the Star Wars sense. <laughs> and so I was like, somebody out there, we might have a Kylo walking around. So my list did not actually match up, but I I was putting all my chips in for the off chance that maybe I won big. So none matches on Gabriel's list. And Corinne, how many did you get? Two. And Mark? I had none also. You also have your Naruto... <laughs> Your gun, Gundam. No, I actually had like Dan, like Aaron, John, like those kinds of like kind of generic names that seem to, I guess, are falling out of favor now, according to this list. Because it seems like a lot of the lists that I've seen from like the last 20 or so years, a lot of these names are on them. So then it's like, I guess it's shifted slightly in the last decade or so. I just imagine doing a story time for a kid named like Gundam Johnson or something like <laughs> that. <laughs> I want that to happen. Imagine like Hickory Dickory Bumblebee. Won't you say your name for me? Gundam, Naruto, Kylo. Those are very nice names. I can't. I can't wait for that day. All right. Well, thank you for t- participating in this. After that little exercise, let's see what kind of names show up on our books today. So we are going to start with Mark. Maybe one of the reasons why I put Daniel on my list is because that's actually the name of the author of my book. So subconsciously, I was thinking about like the author names that I was had in my head. And mine's actually sort of a double bonus because the name of the book is also a name. So this is Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Daniel Quinn wrote more than a dozen novels, stories, uh, many of which featured animals, the natural environment, and sometimes anthropomorphized talking animals as well. So animals that talk and sort of act like a human. He also had a fairly fleshed out worldview and perspective about humans and the natural environment and the sort of connection between humans and the environment. So that became a very common theme in a lot of his work, including in Ishmael, because that's very much a central topic of the book. So in this book, a nameless narrator protagonist is enjoying his morning reading the newspaper one day when he's flabbergasted by an advertisement listed in the paper that reads teacher seeks pupil must have an earnest desire to save the world apply in person surely this must be some kind of joke or frighteningly overly earnest person who has posted this advertisement the narrator thinks so he's initially very dismissive of it he tosses the paper into the garbage but gradually he begins to ponder and think over what exactly this person could possibly be teaching what will I see here and think when I meet such an oddball to see who came up with such a naive sounding scam? Because of this, his interest grows and he actually decides to go to the office to apply and see what awaits him there. Much to his surprise, the person that he meets 
is not a person, but a giant black gorilla. And not just any gorilla, this gorilla has a name, and it is Ishmael. And he can communicate with Homo sapiens telepathically. Shocked by such an ability in the gorilla, Ishmael conveys to the narrator a brief version of his life history from his infancy in a jungle in West Africa before his parents were murdered by humans, taken from his home by the murderers, and sold to a zoo. Later, he was transferred to a kind of traveling circus. And from these, this position, he kind of starts to wonder who these humans are. And they become kind of an object of inquiry to him. As the humans stare at him, he gazes back and slowly picks up on the subtle aspects of human behavior, communication, and culture. This was his life until he's purchased by a wealthy American businessman named Walter Sokolow, who gives Ishmael his own gazebo on his expansive property and comes to view him like a family member. Through his interactions with Sokolow, that Ishmael's ability to learn and communicate with humans grows and grows, with Sokolow spending ever more time and resources on Ishmael, expanding his gazebo into kind of a mini house and study for Ishmael to begin to study almost like a human child of Sokolow. Years later, following the death of Sokolow in his old age, Ishmael leaves the confines of his home to see more of the outside world as much as he can as a gorilla in the city. This sort of led up to present day with Ishmael now older and wishing to impart some of his knowledge onto another living being. But our narrator wonders, what exactly are you teaching? What is this information and knowledge that can sort of quote unquote, save the world to use Ishmael's own words? And Ishmael tells him that he is seeking to teach about captivity and not just in the literal sort of stuck in a cage variety of captivity. He means captivity of the mind, the intellect and the will to change the world. As in Ishmael's words, people are captives of a system called mother culture. But how does this hold people captive? Through stories, he says, only by understanding how the story of what we call civilization is structured and shapes people can anyone go beyond what has simply been passed down to them. And Ishmael kind of develops a complex system of what he calls a story uh, with the beginning, middle, end that sort of explains the relationships of the world and everything in it that people are always trying to enact a story to make it true. And through coming together as a culture, a group of people try to make their collective story come true. But this only raises further questions for the narrator. What exactly is this story? And Ishmael tells him that it's nothing less than a mythology that's so expansive and taken for granted that people no longer even realize that it affects pretty much every aspect of their lives. And in this story, there's two kinds of humans, the takers and the leavers. The takers are the so-called developed people who extract and take as much as they can from the earth, whereas the leavers are the so-called quote-unquote primitive people or indigenous peoples of the world who have rejected or refused to enact this story of environmental extraction and destruction. Humans are sort of seen as like the pinnacle of evolution, that the whole world was made for them, that they are the ones that are sort of destined to rule over the world. And this is what makes it a mythology that has led to the environmental destruction and lack of connection between humans and the rest of the world. And it's sort of like along these lines that the two characters have a ongoing dialogue, ongoing respectful disagreement at times between their different perspectives, between Ishmael and our nameless narrator, who more or less is kind of like the stand-in for Western culture, Western cultural kind of perspectives as they kind of view the world, whereas Ishmael takes a much more um, outsider's kind of perspective as a gorilla, but also as someone who 
has experienced the world and the environment in a very different way from most humans. And this kind of is what the main kind of thrust of the novel is, as they sort of go back and forth and develop their ideas, and as Ishmael imparts his perspective to the narrator. And in some ways, this book was kind of ahead of its time as it was published in 1992 and sort of brought up issues of anthropocentrism, environmental destruction, cultural respect and humility, as well as concepts from social sciences and humanities to a much broader audience in a format that's actually fairly understandable and quick to read. So from this description, it doesn't sound like probably like the easiest kind of light read, but the way that the dialogue is written and the way that the characters interact with each other is actually quite fast paced and entertaining. While at times there's also some ways where the age of the book does show sort of its repeated use of the term man to represent all humans. So there's sort of also these kinds of shortcomings that can be more or less bothersome at times, but I think it doesn't quite detract from the overall idea of the book. And so if you like stories that have sharply written dialogue, ideas that are wide and big in scope and importance, or just like stories of anthropomorphized animal species, then you might also like Ishmael. Thank you, Mark. That sounds like a really interesting combination of things. Wasn't expecting a gorilla book today, but that's <laughs> it's a Mark type of gorilla book. Anyway, well, I'm going to go next because my book is a little heavier. So let's get that out of the way. So listeners, I worked so hard for this episode. I read a Jennifer book. I read a Jason book. I tried to read a Christopher book and a Michael book. None of them turned out to be books I particularly want to talk about. So Thursday morning, a day before our recording, I had to find a book, preferably something short, because I don't read as fast as some of my book friends here. So I ended up with a book that I have picked up before, but never committed to it because I know how much I dislike war novels. It's just not my thing. But this book won the 2021 International Booker Prize. It's on like every best list there is. And given that I have enjoyed some of the Booker winners and nominees lately, I thought, okay, fine, I will do this. Also, I'm desperate, the short. So I ended up with a David book. I guess technically David. It is At Night, All Blood is Black by David Diop and translated by Anna Moschovakis. And as our listeners and fellow readers would know, just because a book is short doesn't mean it is easy to read, doesn't mean it is easy to understand. And there's definitely a lot of advocates for rereading this book, especially given the last few chapters that might kind of change your perspective and, and change the story a little bit. But definitely worth reading. But I do want to give content warning first. This is a very heavy book with some really graphic and disturbing scenes. Um, so content warning for physical violence, for rape, for murder, for death, and for body horror. This is the story of Alpha Diaye, a Senegalese soldier, and his slow descent into madness in the trenches during World War I. Alpha Diaye, along with Madame Diop, who is more than friend, who is more than a brother, they have joined the French army and they are fighting side by side one another. One day, with a little bit of provoking, Madamba was the first to go charge into the battlefield, and when Alpha saw him again, he was lying on the floor, dying, gravely injured. Madamba told Alpha that he was tricked by an enemy soldier who was playing dead, so he didn't see the knife coming at him 
until it was too late. And as Mademba lay there dying, he begged Alpha, please finish me. Please kill me. I'm in pain. Please have mercy on me. But Alpha can't do it. He keep deflecting and he keeps saying, hey, tell me about this blue-eyed German soldier. Tell me about him. Describe him to me. I will avenge you. And his friend is like, who cares about the soldier? Please, I'm begging you. But Demba asked Alpha three times and three times Alpha denied his friend, his brother. Hours later, Mademba died after hours and hours of suffering. And Alpha carries his body back to the trenches. All his fellow soldiers praise Alpha for his sense of honor, for his sense of duty to his brothers in arm. They gave him extra food that night. They gave him extra smokes. But Alpha knows he's not brave. He's a coward. He doesn't even have the courage to grant his friend his death wish. He was afraid. And this guilt, this shame starts to eat him up. It starts to break him down. He thinks he could see now. He thinks that he could think for himself now. And the next day, when the battle starts, instead of joining in, Alpha got down on all fours. He crawls and he crawls close to the enemy lines. And then he waits. That night, he came back long after everyone has returned with the spoils of his version of the war. At first, his fellow soldiers gave him a friendly slap in the back. He sh they share a laugh at the expense of the enemies. They congratulate Alpha for doing what he did. But then after a few days, in their eyes, Alpha could see that they are scared of him. There's no more laughing. There's no more friendly chatting. They call him the soldier sorcerer. They say that he's practicing witchcraft. They say that he has made friends with death. They say that he has made friends with the devil. And just like that, they stay far, far away from Alpha. As Alpha loses touch with reality, as he becomes more and more delusional, he tries to do all these things to make it up to Mademba for what he has failed to do for his friend before he died. David Diop is a Senegalese French writer, and he brings to us an often untold, unwritten, and omitted story and history of the 200,000 men who have been recruited, who have been taken from different colonies in Africa to fight in a war for a country that is not theirs. Just like our main characters, they joined the French army and they were categorized as a chocolate soldier. They were expected, they were told to live up to the reputation because everybody knows that they are savages, that they are cannibals, that they are demons, that they are flesh eaters. So be that and the Germans will be so afraid of you and you need to be more vicious and more savage than they expect you to be because that's what they think of you. And despite being in the trenches together, literally, nobody can see the humanity of these folks. At night, 
all blood is black, bring us face to face with the day-to-day horror in the war with unflinching details and the demands on one's mind to redefine what you know and what you believe with these new meanings of violence, of morality, of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And moreover, to build this wall around your mind so that you can compartmentalize what you do out there on the battlefield during the day and what you come back to at night, who you are as a person out there and who you are as a person back in the trenches. And what Alpha brings back and why they are so they are so scared of him is because he shows them that this is all random. This is all senseless, that it could be you the next day. There is no reason why you didn't die today. It could be you. And and there is no reason for any of this. And all the soldiers, they need to believe that there is a reason, that this is not just all pointless and that they are getting killed. If they're going to get killed, it's because of who they are, not because this is just all random and and alpha shatters that illusion and and so they have to push him away they have to demonize him to give themselves a reason this story of irreparable trauma that war inflicts on the mind on the soul is is a brutal read but it's got this really poetic prose with a lot of repetitions a lot of refrains that gave you this feel of an oral storytelling and i agree with a lot of the readers yes this book does require rereading i don't think i completely understood how the last few chapters and what the revelations kind of changed the rest of the book. I think it definitely the rereading to kind of see it with new eyes. It's, it's a very dark and difficult read, but I think this is definitely one to add to your list, especially since it provides a much needed perspective that has been missing in all the stories of the World War. So I would recommend you to check this book out. And again, with all the content warning, it is it is a tough read. It is at night. All Blood is Black by David Diop and translated by Anna Moschavakis. All right. With that, let's go into maybe another Annabelle book. Another Annabelle book. So, Corinne, what name did you choose for today's episode? Well, again, I kind of failed to read the entire brief, so I thought it had to be the top name of the year. So I was stuck with Jennifer. I've never trusted a Jennifer. I'm always slightly suspicious of a Jennifer. I've only known one Jennifer in my life, which is kind of odd because it was the top name of my year, but I think I've only met one that was younger than me. And yeah, I don't trust them. I don't trust them. And like Virginia, I had a bit of a struggle finding a book that I thought I would enjoy. So I went kind of like very far afield, high up in the trees, in the skies, in the clouds. And I chose a nonfiction book, which I do enjoy, about a subject that I could not care less about. Absolutely could not care less. But here we are. And it kind of all boils down to two words, bird brain. So in the 1920s, a bird brain meant someone a little bit dim, a little bit flighty, a little bit kind of up in the air and not too intelligent. And to be fair, some birds do have very small brains and they do run into windows and they regurgitate worms into the mouth of their young. And sometimes they mistake boots for their boyfriends. It happens. Their brains are not that big. 
But as Jennifer Ackerman argues persuasively in The Genius of Birds, that maybe they're a lot more intelligent than we give them credit for. There are elements or aspects where birds actually excel and are better than humans. We think that we have kind of like won the evolutionary race and are masters of the planet, but have you met a seagull? Have you tried tussling with a Canadian goose? Jennifer Ackerman kind of argues that, you know what, this is the bird's planet. We just live in it. We just occupy some of that space. I've never had a problem accepting that birds are intelligent because I watched Jurassic Park at a young age. And if dinosaurs evolved into, with very few steps, very few steps, into birds, then it makes perfect sense that birds can open doors and pick locks and carry knives away from crime scenes because they want to. In this book, she kind of examines, like, kind of strangely enough, linking into Mark's book, like, how are we to decide that we are the most intelligent species on the entire planet? How do we really talk about intelligence and how do we measure or compare it to other species that might not be able to communicate or build a skyscraper, but can navigate over an ocean? How, how do you kind of rank or compare these two things? And a lot of the ideas that we have about intelligence or cognition are outdated and frankly a little bizarre. Brain size ain't it. Just because you have the brain of a pea or which is proportional to your body doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're dumb or stupid. They are a perfectly designed creature. Everything about them is adapted for flight because it is a superior way to get away from your predators. They have so many advantages that their bodies are like uh, a Lamborghini, I don't know, a really fancy car, where everything is meticulously designed and constantly adapting to be better, to get better food and to be better suited to the environment. So if we're looking at kind of like the list of things that we can measure intelligence by, is it tools? Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. You think the primates have like the tool monopoly? No, 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 no. There are crows that, that the New Caledonian crow that not only makes tools, but also keeps tools just in case they need them again. There is also one of the crows that needed to get something that was on a little bit of a bend, took a little stick and then bent it into a hook. Yeah. So they can use tools, no problem. Language? Uh, bird song is incredibly complex. It communicates things from like, hey, baby, hey, baby, hey, to danger, there's an owl coming. And it is also taught. It is taught to other birds. There are dialects, and some birds are bilingual. They can speak different dialects to each other. Are they socially savvy? Uh, yeah. Yeah, they are. Some birds in different places have different bird culture. Um, they love to give gifts. And this is maybe speculation. Some birds might actually have funerals and understand the concept of death. They also, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things. Sure, they mate for life, but that really doesn't stop them from having extramarital affairs. <laughs> so they go around 
just for fun. They recognize people. They are incredibly, incredibly smart at recognizing uh, not only birds, other birds, but human faces. And then they pass along that information to their children so that their children could also attack Richard Nixon. They do social learning, which is bananas. Um, Social learning is the reason why they think that like human beings beat Neanderthals, but birds have it. Birds have it. Birds also appreciate fine art. Is that art a really nice nest? Yes, but nests are also very aesthetic and many ladybirds will not engage with a bird gentleman unless he has a really nice aesthetic. Is it navigation? I get lost at Metro Town. Birds cross oceans. They have maps in their mind. They can feel the magnetic lines of the earth. Um, They have fantastic memories in that um, some things like uh, chickadees that have the brain the size of a pea, they hide food for the winter and they can find it six months later. If I put down my keys, they're gone forever. So there's the theory of the mind that is that you're aware of your own thinking and they are beginning to do tests where they suspect that birds might have some version of this. So magpies actually recognize themselves in the mirror which at a certain point they thought only humans and primates could do. But no, 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 magpie can do. They solve problems. They invent novel solutions. They count. They remember where they put things. There was a crow called 007 that solved an eight-part puzzle just using all the tools. And they adapt. They are incredibly, one could argue even faster than humans, at adapting to their environment and adapting to evolving and adapting their behaviors or even their physical bodies to better suit their areas. So to kind of end with a quote from Jennifer Ackerman, um, intelligence as we understand it may vary among birds, but no bird is truly stupid. As the ornithologist Richard F. Johnson said, everything that is, is adaptive, not miraculously, not flawlessly, but with its own kind of genius. That is my pick, which I would actually recommend, The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. Thank you, Miss Corrine. So how do you feel about birds now? Oh, no, I've always been wary of birds, and this just confirms it. Birds also use tools to beat up each other. <laughs> and like, they, yeah, they use a stick and they're just like poking it and wait for my food. And then they can open like they open milk bottles and then they tell their other friends about the milk bottles and everyone's opening the milk bottles. Yeah. You should be scared of birds. You should fear them. Feelings for birds, Mark and Gabriel? They can see the magnetic fields of the earth, a lot of them. Like they can perceive things that just aren't there to most other people. I'm a fan of them. I like a bird. I feel feel that I want to know about bird spirituality and whether or not birds consider themselves in the same spiritual sense that humans have or if maybe there's like a separate situation going on where maybe they're like certain types of humans are associated with trickster myths in bird mythology. Um, I want to see how it goes. I want to see at what point we can start getting into bird spirituality and um, the potential for like bird theisms. That is because some of them are tricksters, Gabriel. Some of them, I think it's the Kua, uh, go along playing pranks on humans, like letting the air out of their tires (laughs) for fun. There's no reason why they do it. It's literally just for fun. They're like gangs of like teen thugs roaming around this island, just causing problems 
for fun. Birds are amazing. Birds are amazing. I wish Fiona is here because I think she has definitely has some feelings about birds. <laughs> Certain birds, for sure. <laughs> well, we'll have to convince Fiona to read your book, or maybe. Maybe then they'll be more scared of it. I don't know. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not a good idea. Anyway, all right. Well, thank you, Corinne, for a, a Jennifer book. Good job for finding a Jennifer book because I couldn't. Um. All right. Well, Gabriel, what have you got for us today? All right. Well, I don't have birds, but I do have another nonfiction. So I chose a book with a name that was not only common in the mid-90s when I was born, but also probably throughout decades in general. There are certainly many a young lad named Juan in the world, and in my case, I chose Juan Villaro with the most recent translation of his book, Horizontal Vertigo, A City Called Mexico. So it was initially published in Spanish in 2019, and the English translation is from Alfred McAdam, and it was published last year in 2021. So Vero is known as a journalist, as a philosopher, an author, and he isn't a politician by nature, but he did actually have a role in writing Mexico City's constitution. So he's quite involved in the politics of the city. He considers himself a Chilango, so someone who is from Mexico City. And definitely in this case, I think he's earned it. He's very, very involved in the community. And really, this book just shows... I think how much experience he has with the city as a whole. And that's something that I really love. He tries to kind of show Mexico City in all its eccentricities and all of its contradictions without making it feel like any of these stories that he's collected are representative of the entire city. It's mostly short vignettes and essays about things that might seem kind of unrelated at first, but they make up the fabric of Mexico City. It's very easy with books. I think about a city to oversimplify it. This is sort of like that travel guide concept where you're reading maybe like these little snippets of a city. Even I've talked before about a movable feast. That's a very specific version of Paris. And it's very much not representative of the whole city. And it's a very romanticized version. And I would say this is nothing like that. This is not really a romanticized Mexico City. It is something that has beauty and I suppose, terror in it. It has all of the kind of ups and downs, but it has the ups and downs of someone who has always wanted to understand it and has always appreciated it for what it is. And so it's a very honest take. It's a very interesting take. And he really delves into, I think, the potential of the city, both in its history and also in the places that it can go, coming from someone who has been active not only in the communities, but again, in shaping the politics, in shaping the legal documents, in shaping the way that, yeah, the way that the city could manifest in the future and the ways that it has both served its people and come from very specific places, but also the ways in which it has failed its people. And some of the, I wouldn't say necessarily atrocities, but the, definitely the tragedies that have fallen over the city through the years. So the vignettes in the essays, I, I'd say, are very grounded in Vero's perspective as the author. He doesn't try to pull away and claim neutrality. He's very, very much a philosopher in this. I think that was one thing that might actually have been a little bit of a barrier for me, is that even if, if someone explains like a philosophical concept to me, like that's one thing. But if you're just sort of name dropping like Kierkegaard, I'm 
taken a brief minute to Google because I, I don't know who he's connected to. I don't know what specific philosophies are attached to what specific people. Yeah, Vero's a very well-read man. Very well-read man. And he knows a lot about different things. He'll mention Les Mis and I'll feel smart for a minute. And then he'll mention something else and I'll be put in my place as I'm reading it. But it definitely, definitely something that I think helped in terms of looking at the different ways that maybe you can understand a city and understand the things that go into a city and the ways that when philosophy actually touches the practical everyday today realities, it can change and it can sort of provide you a different perspective. He really, I think, understands in like horizontal vertigo, but it seems like in a lot of his works that to walk the city is just to be a part of it. And he is as much as a character in this as the people that he meets and the different dramas that he sees. So for some context, Mexico City has a very complex history and it was only named that recently. So when I say that he was related to the Constitution, he's not very, very old. It used to be the federal district and they went through a lot of changes recently. And it's the seat of power, obviously, for the Mexican states. And it has a lot more people than Vancouver, which when I started to actually think about the concept of how big this city is, I realized how massive and sprawling it is. That's where the name horizontal vertigo comes from. And it's one of the things that he talks quite a bit about is that the ground underneath the city is not stable enough to build things like skyscrapers on. Because if you know anything about the history, they drained a lake. And so they're on sand to an extent. The type of land that Mexico City inhabits is surrounded by mountains. It's on tectonic plates. And earthquakes are the big issue. Not even necessarily the the worry of like volcanoes or anything like that that might be around. It's earthquakes. And so that means that land developers have to expand horizontally. So Mexico City is a massive, massive sprawling city. And when a skyscraper does pop up, it's one that represents a lot of things. It represents land development in a way that is unsafe for people, in a way that is sort of doomed to be a little bit of a hazard. And so I think picking the name Horizontal Vertigo, he kind of talks about it as this idea of this ever-expanding city that has just moved further and further beyond the constraints of what it initially was supposed to be and has to remake itself to be able to continue to survive. So Mexico City is very dictated by the natural world, but it's also very dictated by the interpersonal. I think for me, the stories of the people and the snapshots of culture were the most interesting. So for instance, street vendors can apparently get anything for you. So they could be selling like tamales, they could be selling food, or they could be selling copies of Plato's The Republic, which apparently go like hotcakes in Mexico City. They either have what you need or they will get it for you the next day. And they will get probably whatever translation you want of all of these, these works. They will get you just about anything that you could possibly need. There's also the Lucha Libre wrestlers, of course, that tell their stories of good and evil in a way that is simplified and comforting because the good person always wins. There's a lot of UFO fanatics, apparently, in Mexico City. There's also a big zombie enthusiast community which sort of brings in ideas of like transcendence and even philanthropy, especially with the concept of how the dead are seen maybe in, in different ways because uh, zombie walks are often charitable, I guess. The imagination and philosophy of the city really do come alive with the way that he describes these things, the, the sort of concepts behind them, but also 
how they manifest in people's day-to-day lives and the different ceremonies, the different events, festivals, the different places that you can go in the city to see these things. The strangeness of the way that signs can take different concepts and bring them in. The fact that you can't really use Google Maps or Waze in the same way in Mexico City as you might in another place because to actually know which street that Vero lives on, you have to know which area of the city because his exact address exists in like three different places. And so you have to know kind of like which place he's going. You can't just put it into Google Maps, which I think is actually is kind of funny. But um, probably it, it leads to a different way of of navigating the city and understanding the way that it is built and the way that connections are form, formed. You could honestly, I think, open the book roughly at any point and start reading it. A lot of the different essays and things are are pretty self-contained. They are separated into sort of different ideas like people in places or ceremonies or these big concepts. But really, you could open it and see these little vignettes like they're meant to be kind of um, stories that you can pick up and move along. And each one will have kind of a different feeling to it. And so even if you were someone who didn't maybe want to read the whole thing, because it is a little bit of a chunky guy, it does have a lot of interesting yeah, it has a lot of interesting stuff that you could pick up even if you just read a few. So it is very much a snapshot of his time there. As I mentioned before, he is very much a character in this, although he isn't necessarily acting upon the world as much as he is maybe just a very present narrator to a lot of what's going on. He also has a particular style of humor and kind of half complaining about certain things. I don't want to say it's dad jokes or things that could be sort of the stereotypical father. Uh, Definitely some of it could be translation, but it definitely feels like your uncle is complaining to you about traffic and how badly the government sort of fumbled the swine flu epidemic or like telling you about like the wrestling match you saw the other day. And that's not to downplay the effects that the stories have. It's more to describe, I think, like the intimacy and the, the passion and the familiarity with which Vero really delves into Mexico City. But he does have a little bit of that. He's your your strange philosopher uncle who you came home for the day and you are eating dinner and he is regaling you on his opinions and the fact that he's waiting for his next shipment of philosophy books or something on like the Panopticon or anything, anything like that. He's he's definitely a bit of a character and I think that kind of adds to it. I would absolutely recommend it to anybody who's interested in travel or culture obviously i think that's the that's probably one of the reasons that i picked it up that lots of people picked it up but also the history and sociology of mexico city in particular and also the way that different forms of philosophy and different philosophies around the world can sort of interact with latin american culture i think was really interesting to see he obviously has quite a hold in politics and he has a lot pride for the city, but he's also aware of the sort of interesting aspects that nationalism has and the way that it has interacted with Mexico's past. I wouldn't say that you need to have a grasp on the way that certain concepts, whether that be like sociological or philosophical, already, you don't really need to know how they already exist. I think he can kind of give you that, but it might be the sort of thing that you end up wanting to go and look into more because it is a very complex topic there. And it is one that is 
constantly developing. And he has been in the city long enough to see it develop. And so it is kind of a cool thing to look at. There's a part in one of the stories on ceremonies about the concept of El Grito, which is the shout. Uh, It has to do with Mexican independence. It's sort of a call and response thing that happens. But when Vero is describing the crowds that are out and about on that night, in their revelry, in their almost carnival-esque approaches to independence, he describes the night something like this. I am going to edit a little bit of it based on swearing. So you can fill in your own blanks, but... uh, The sensorial intensity of dawn brings with it the unifying gestures of rapid romance and pig feet, the foot stomping and risk, a caress warmed up by a jug of atole, the neighboring shoulder we used to wipe off the water that fell from heaven or perhaps from a kidney. What sort of identity takes shape there? The plazas fill up with Mexicans, tattooed, twisted, blonde, some bleached, with piercings, Mexican pirates, wasted Mexicans, Texas Mexicans, space alien Mexicans, express Mexicans, commonplace Mexicans, export Mexicans, typical Mexicans, odd Mexicans, calendar Mexicans, Mexicans fed up with being Mexicans, comic book Mexicans, Mexicans as unique as Mexico itself, the many ways we have of configuring La Raza, the mob that only allows one statistic. There's a boatload of us and there will be more. And that is Horizontal Vertigo, A City Called Mexico by Juan Biro. Thank you, Gabriel. That sounds amazing. I am surprised that there are actually like some nonfiction books that I actually want to read. Thanks, Corinne. Thanks, Gabriel. Hmm, don't know what's happening. But yes, so a Daniel, a David, a Jennifer, and a Juan. So thank you for doing this fun assignments and so listeners you know if you're looking to find a way to like decide what book to read next maybe you can try this out too find a book by an author with a popular baby name yes i'm looking forward to all the theodores and the olivia and the oliver coming in a few years so thank you everyone for joining us for another episode and uh, we will see you next week bye-bye thank you for listening If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. (laughs) 